Hey, good morning. Man, you guys sound amazing. That was just beautiful singing. And I'm going to say it's because the kids are with us. Uh, it has to be. That was awesome, you guys. Um, if I've not had a chance to meet you, my name is Aaron, teaching pastor for Riverwood. Really glad you're joining us here in person and you get to enjoy all the energy of all the kids or you're joining us online. Really glad you're here. And it, yes, I'm starting with sports. Uh, how many of you are football fans? I noticed it's mostly the kids' hands that went up, uh, so I apologize to all of the adults, but for the kids, clearly, they need to hear this illustration. This afternoon, my TV will be turned on to the American Football Championship game because my two boys are Chiefs fans, and the Chiefs are in their fourth one in a row. And so, they're watching, hoping that their team will win and make the Super Bowl. That's what's at stake tonight. The winner gets to go to the Super Bowl. Now... On Twitter, I have been seeing all sorts of fans going back and forth why they think their team is going to win. Uh, the Chiefs fans say it's because of their experience. Like I just said, this is their fourth year in a row of making the AFC Championship game. That's never happened before. All right, so four years in a row of getting to host the AFC game. And, and so they're saying, this is why we're going to win. The Bengals fans, though, are saying, yeah, but Chiefs fans, we just beat you. Four weeks ago. So we got your number. We know how to take you down. That's when I saw this guy who is an Indianapolis Colts fan say he's going for the Chiefs because Bengals fans don't know how to act right now. They need to be put in their place. That phrase, put in their place, typically means to humble someone or even to shame them because they have too high of a view and they need to be brought down to reality. Which is why some of you might be uncomfortable when you realize that I've named our next series Putting the Bible in Its Place. It doesn't just sound provocative. It sounds sacrilegious. Like, am I here today to try to put the Bible in its place, to lower it, to humble it? Actually, just the opposite. You see, I sense in me and in most of us, the Bible probably doesn't have a prominent enough place in our lives that we actually need to raise its value in our eyes and our heart. That's its proper place. And so we're going to enter into a four-week series about the Bible. Now, I almost didn't do this series at all. Uh, many of you know that every fall in November, I take a 48-hour spiritual retreat, and during that time, a, a small portion of it, I try to give to planning my preaching calendar for the next year. So last fall, I set all of 2022, for the most part, there's a few Sundays in there where we may have to make some adjustments. In fact, some of it is wrapping around already to 2023, if you could believe that. But I had something completely different planned for this time period in 2022. But when we entered the, 20, uh, the 21 days of prayer this year, as I was working through stuff, I just started having this general underlying sense that my original plan wasn't the right thing for this time. And so I started to ask myself and pray to God, what is it that we should be looking at and talking about? Well, some of it came back to our mission. If you were with us last week for Vision Sunday, you heard the reminder that our mission is to invite the spiritually disconnected to find and follow Jesus. To follow Jesus is to be a disciple, someone who's wanting to grow spiritually. The language you use at Riverwood is we want to help people to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. 
So I started thinking, okay, what can we do to help you become more like Jesus? And I started wondering, do we need to go and look at like some of the basic key doctrines of the faith? We've never done a doctrinal series on like the doctrine of God, the doctrine of Jesus, the doctrine of salvation and, and man. Like those things come up every week, but we've never really taken the time to actually study it. So I started thinking maybe that's what we should do. So I started trying to put together a series, started looking at what doctrines should we look at. And that's when I ran into a slight problem. It's not really a problem, but I realized that these doctrines that we would study are all based on the Bible. Despite what some skeptics and critics might say, the Christian fathers did not pick out these doctrines just out of the air. Oh, that, that sounds like a good idea. No, they took what they believed to be the Bible, what they believed was God's word, and began to study it and try and put all this together to help them understand who is God, what is his nature, what is he like, what is the whole thing about Jesus, why did God do these sort of things? Like, they started studying the scriptures. And that's when, about two weeks ago, after talking things through with Jake, decided... You know what, rather than go and do a doctrinal series, maybe what we should do is kind of even go more basic and do a series on the Bible itself. Now, this series is going to be very, very different than anything we've ever done. It's going to lean a little bit more towards like a Bible class than a traditional sermon. Now, today, we're going to actually be looking at one phrase out of a passage. So today's going to feel a little more like a traditional sermon, but the next few weeks are going to feel very different. My hope and goal by doing this kind of different series is to help you increase your respect for the scriptures as well as increase your hunger for the scriptures. That as you desire to read and study the scriptures, it will help to put the Bible in its proper place in your life. So as we get ready to jump into our series, let's pray. So Heavenly Father, I pray that you would take the words that I have prepared to say today and you would embed them into the hearts and minds of your people. Whether they're right here in person, they're joining online, or they're listening to a podcast later in the week, that you would take these things and you would help open their eyes, their hearts to what you have for them. That God, this wouldn't be about me and me trying to convince people of something. This would be you moving the hearts of people towards you. And so God, I pray that you would help all of us to to come to a proper understanding of exactly what the Bible is and, and why you've given it to us and how we are to incorporate it into our lives. So, Lord, would you teach us now? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our key passage for this entire series is going to be 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. So if you brought a Bible, whether that's a paper Bible or a digital Bible, feel free to open up to 2 Timothy 3, uh, 16 and 17. If you're online, uh, there is a Bible tab over there. Feel free to click on that and navigate there if you don't have your own Bible. Um, and if you do not have a Bible and you're here in person, don't worry. I do have the scripture up on the screen, so you're going to be able to read right along with us. I'm just going to strongly encourage you, especially as we start a series on the Bible, we would love you to have one. So we would love to give you a gift. We've got some Bibles back on our resource table out in the lobby. Stop and pick one of those up. We've got two different translations. If you want, find me afterwards, and I'll help you find the, the translation that would fit you the best. Or download a Bible to your phone. We recommend the uh, uh, just YouVersion Bible app. It's got multiple translations. There's even some audio Bibles built in, some ad, uh, some uh, tools for sharing Bible verses uh, on social media. And, and so we recommend you use that because then you have a, a number of tools at your disposal. The book of 2 Timothy is written by the Apostle Paul. Uh, Paul had been traveling around the known world planting churches. Paul's life had been changed by the gospel, and he wanted other people to know about this Jesus, about his death on the cross for the forgiveness of their sins and his resurrection from the dead. 
Well, he ended up in a city known as Ephesus. And it turned out that as he planted that church, that church began to grow and became a very prominent church. In fact, that church in Ephesus, if like they had church conferences back then, that would be the kind of church that would host a conference. Well, Paul, after three years in Ephesus, began to get the itch to go on to plant more churches. But because Ephesus was such a strategic church, he didn't feel comfortable just leaving it to anyone. So he asked his mentee, his protege, Timothy, to take over. But Paul was not done mentoring Timothy. He had more that he wanted to say or things that he wanted to remind him of. So we know of at least two letters that Paul wrote to Timothy. And in the world of crazy naming schemes, they named it 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy. Pretty basic. In 2 Timothy, Paul is trying to remind Timothy, hey, here's what you need to give the people. And over and over, he's reminding them, give them sound doctrine. Paul knew they needed to believe the right things. If you believe the wrong thing, it's going to lead to the wrong behaviors. So he wanted them to believe the right thing. But it wasn't enough to Paul for Timothy to just fill their heads with doctrine. He also wanted them to have sound living. But in Paul's mind, there was only one, well, not only one, but there was one great tool that could be used to help people find that sound doctrine and sound living. And that was the scripture, which is why he tells Timothy, who probably already knew these things, he reminds him of this. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We're going to use that set of verses these two verses every week of our series and we're going to use it as kind of a launching pad into other portions of the scripture as into other resources that will help us understand how the bible came together in fact here's what our series is going to look like next week we're going to look at the reliability of the scriptures why is this something that we can actually trust then we're going to see uh, in two weeks how the bible became recognized what we understand to be the bible protestants believe there are 66 books uh, catholics and and um, uh, orthodox they've got some other books in there we're going to talk talk through that and then uh to finish out we're going to talk about the revelation like why did god give us the scripture what is the whole purpose behind it but before we can get to those other three r's we need to get to our pseudo r we need to look at the bible being written and how it is being written by god and we see that in that very first phrase there of second timothy uh, three sixteen: all scripture is breathed out by god now that word all the Greek word could be translated all, or it could be translated every. Some of you have a translation right now that you're looking at in, in your paper Bible or your digital Bible, and you see it says every scripture or every part of scripture. And that's, that's accurate. It's why I'm very thankful that we here in America have so many English translations because it helps us to see that it is all of scripture and every part of scripture. Now, in your mind, that you may be thinking... What's the difference? Well, you know, there's not much, but I like because each of those words brings out different nuance. The word all helps you see it's like this complete story, like the, the comprehensive whole. But when you see that it's every part, it helps you get down to the finer details. If a movie critic went to a theater to, to watch a film and is sitting there among the audience, they may write their review later saying that at certain points, the entire audience, all of the audience laughed or they all gasped. 
But then afterwards, they may say that as they were talking to people in the lobby, as people were leaving, that each person was raving about the film. You see, they're, they're telling you the comprehensive whole of how the theater in, enjoyed it, but how each person made up that whole. That's what Paul is seeking to accomplish here. It's all of Scripture, but it's also the parts. Now, we've got to make sure that we don't make the mistake of focusing only on the all or only on the every. You see, if we focus only on the all, we miss out that it is down to those finer details, that that is part of God's word. But also, the mistake some Christians make is they get so caught up on the finer details, the every part, that they forget that this is one grand narrative, that all of this is from God. Now, there are critics of the scriptures who would say that, okay, we'll give you that all of the Bible is God's word. But every part, down to the little bit, like, this is written by humans. And humans make mistakes. A critic may use an illustration like this to make their point. Last Friday night, the number two ranked Iowa Hawkeye wrestling team hosted the number one rated Penn State Nittany Lions. The whole place was alive because early in the season, Iowa had been ranked number one, but then their number one 125 pounder had to have knee surgery, so he's out. Suddenly, the, 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 Experts switched them. Penn State went from number two to number one, and Iowa fell from number one to number two. So the Hawkeyes are out to prove something, that they're actually the number one team. So Penn State rolls into town, and the meet does not start off very well for the Hawkeyes. The first three matches go to Penn State. Next thing you know, the Hawkeyes are down 10-0 in the team score. But then in the fourth match, a Hawkeye wins. The fifth match, a Hawkeye wins. And then in the sixth match, the Hawkeye not only wins, but he gets what's called a major decision. And that ties the meet up 10 to 10. Now, a sports columnist experiencing that environment might say the entire arena was exploding with cheers. But the critic would say, but that's not accurate. Because the Penn State wrestlers were not cheering when their guy lost. The Penn State coaches were not cheering. The, the few Penn State fans that were at Carver-Hawkeye Arena were not cheering. So you can't say every person was cheering. The Bible critic would say, okay, I'll give you that all of it, this is, is kind of the Bible, but I, I, those finer details, you can't say every part is by God because humans make mistakes. And there's all sorts of mistakes. There's inconsistencies between it and, and they, they, they roll out all this stuff. I think if Paul were alive... He would say, guys, I used this particular Greek word for a reason. All of the Bible is the scripture. And so is every single part. You put all those parts down to the finest detail, and it puts together this incredible, holistic thing. But what I want you to notice is that Paul did not say that all scripture is just from God. Nor did he even say that all scripture is pinned by God. He says, all scripture is breathed out by God. Now you might have a translation that says that all scripture is inspired by God. And I want you to know that is actually a very accurate translation. The word there is inspired. However, I think that many of us English speakers misunderstand that because we've changed the word inspire. You see, we see inspired as like seeing a sunset and I was so inspired I had to write a poem. Or you go to a graduation and the speaker's really, really good and you hear the speech and you're so inspired that you go and you change the way you're living. That's how we use inspired. So when we hear that the Bible was inspired by God, 
we, we start to say to ourselves, oh, so does that mean like the, pe- the, the, the writers are going, man, God is so cool. Like he's just so awesome. I feel so inspired. I'm going to just start writing the Bible. No, that is not what it means. Now, the word inspire, it, it means breathe out. I mean, think of it like this way, uh, an, a coupon. It may expire at a certain date. In other words, that's when it loses its air. There's, there's nothing left in it. It has no more life. It's no good. But if it's inspired, so, so, you know, there's value been breathed into it. That's the idea here, that when the Bible is inspired, God has breathed into it and breathed it out to us. But what exactly does that mean, that God has breathed the scriptures? First, it means that the scriptures are ultimately written by God. Yes, he used the hand of 40 different authors, but ultimately he is the one true author. That is why we see incredible consistency from Genesis to Revelation. We're going to talk next week about some of the inconsistencies that are in the scripture and and show why they're not quite what we think they are and the Bible is actually reliable. But when you look at it as a whole, if you try to just rack this up as a human document, it, it doesn't make sense. Like there are ties between them that there's no way 40 different human authors writing 66 different books could possibly come up with that, especially when you consider that it was written over thousands of years. And so we see God's handiwork. We see this incredible consistency. Plus, how do you explain when someone like Isaiah describes a virgin giving birth and then we see it fulfilled 600 some years later by Jesus? Like no human could pull that off. That takes the divine. And now it makes sense when you realize that the scriptures are God breathed. But then what about these authors? Does it mean that they like fell into a trance? Like they, they suddenly were not aware of their faculties and, and God like was controlling them through the Holy Spirit? Or does it mean that like Jesus showed up and goes, hey, Moses, how you doing? Fist bump. Hey, let's sit down. I, I have a few things I want you to write down for me. No, God did not sit down and dictate to them. He did not overtake them. He used their personalities. He used their backgrounds. He used their culture. He used their quirks. And yet he wrote through them exactly what he wanted the original readers to get and to be carried through the generations. This past week, I was, uh, as I was doing research, I uh, came across a YouTube video that had a really, really good illustration. Imagine that I have up here three different instruments. Let's pretend that I have a trumpet, an oboe, and a kazoo. All right? I pick up the trumpet and I blow my breath into it. It's going to sound like a trumpet. I pick up the oboe. I pick the oboe because that's what I played in band. But I play into the oboe and it's going to sound like an oboe. If I pick up the kazoo and I blow into it, it's just going to annoy you. But you understand the trumpet's going to sound like the trumpet. The oboe's going to sound like the oboe, and the kazoo's going to sound like a kazoo. Same breath going into them. I even make them produce the melody that I want them to, but they each sound different. Peter may have been the trumpet. Paul may have been an oboe. I don't know who the biblical writer would be a kazoo. But you see how God could work through their personalities, their backgrounds, and still produce the melody he wanted them to produce. God breathed through these human authors exactly what he wanted them to do, but still used them for who they were. Peter writes about this a little bit in his letter. This is from 1 Peter, I mean 2 Peter 1.21. 
He says, for no prophecy, referring to words coming from God, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. In other words, men did not come up with these things on their own. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. He's describing that process of God breathing through them. In fact, in just a couple of chapters, he's going to mention Paul by name and even refer to the writings of Paul as Scripture. He realized God is using his contemporary to breathe these things out into humans because Peter knows that all scripture, every single part of it, is breathed out by God. Now, I realize that when you hear this, that you're probably going to have one of two reactions. Some of you, your reaction is to scoff. I, I don't blame you. When you hear of this invisible God doing the supernatural work of breathing out the scriptures through these human authors, it just sounds a little fanciful, a little kooky, a little too mystical. You're a little more comfortable with science, with things you can see, with things that can be tested. And this whole thing, it just sounds like mythology. I just want to say, I hear you. I get it. I grew up being made fun of for everything. I was smaller than most of my peers. I got glasses way too early. I was not a star on the the football field on the playground. I had a name, a girl's name, and a last name that rhymed with nerd and turd. All right, everything that they could possibly put on the list of things to make fun of Aaron Bird, I mean, they were all there. So the last thing I wanted to do was add to the list of things to use to mock Aaron Bird was fool. So when someone would try to start telling me something, I immediately doubted them because I did not want to get suckered into something so that they could then just laugh at how gullible I was. So if you hear about the inspiration of scripture, of how God breathed these things out, and you're going, no way, I get it. You don't want to fall for some sort of religious trick and be found gullible and have people laugh at you. That's why I encourage you, join us next week. Next week, we're going to look at why the scriptures are reliable, why we can actually trust them. Now, I am not the expert in this. I'm going to be relying upon upon a bunch of other sources to help me put the sermon together next week. But I'm going to do my best. I'm going to try to just authentically let you know, here's why I believe you can trust the scriptures. Which means if you have family or friends or neighbors who fall into that skeptical scoffing area invite them to join us next week. I can't promise you that they're going to walk out of here completely convinced, but I can promise you I'm going to do my best to let you know, here's why I believe you can trust the scriptures. They are reliable. While I realize some of you may scoff at what I'm saying, there are some of you, when you hear that the scriptures have been God-breathed, that he is truly the author, it fills you with awe. It's almost as if God, by breathing out these scriptures, has breathed life into you. Um, Many years ago, when my family lived in Kansas City for 16 months, I had the opportunity to meet Pat. Uh, I had known of Pat before I actually met him in person. His soon-to-be ex-wife had become a part of our church and had joined our small group. As she began to tell us about the difficulties in her marriage and why she was leaving him, and I heard a lot of things about Pat. Turned out Pat was a lawyer 
who in college had been a champion debater. They used to travel to national debates, and they would not only perform well, they would sometimes win. And so this carried well into uh, his law practice. He was a corporate lawyer, and rarely did any of his cases actually go to court, because if they did go to court, his claim to fame was he had never lost yet at that time. So she said that that lawyer skills, which made him so successful in his practice, was devastating in their marriage. He would take the things that she would say and twist them and use them against her. And she felt trapped. She could never win. And she just reached a place where she's just like, I can't take it anymore. I'm out. And in the middle of her pain, she decides to go try a church where she hears about Jesus. She gives her life to Christ. And we had the joy of beginning to watch her grow. Well, they had, during their separation had agreed to one week with the kids and then swap them the other week. And their day to switch was Sundays. Well, she asked one particular Sunday that Pat drop the kids off before church so that they could go to their equivalent of Kids Creek. Well, he agreed. He brought the kids, but he decided to stick around. He wanted to know what is it that his soon-to-be ex-wife is now so encaptured by? What is it that his kids are being exposed to? Pat was not an atheist, but he was a deist. He believed there was a God who had created the world, but then had stepped back. Pat saw no evidence of the work of God in the world. So he saw evidence God created, no evidence of God still working. So he wanted to know, what is this all about? So he comes into the service. Now, I was there doing what was called a leadership residency. The purpose was for me to see multiple areas within the church to help prepare me for planting now Riverwood Church one day. So I did not preach very often. I only got to teach in those 16 months six times. But that Sunday happened to be one of the weeks I was teaching. After the service, Pat, who had no clue who he was, comes up to me and begins to ask me all these questions. Before long, I start to catch on what's happening. This is the X, the soon-to-be X, And I'm now trapped in a conversation with this incredibly intelligent lawyer. And he's now asking me for my email address so that he can enter into an email exchange with me. And I'm thinking, no thank you. Because I do not want you to take my written words and twist them and use them against me. But in my foolishness, I thought it would therefore be better for us to get together in person. And so I invited him out for dinner. I'm not sure what I was thinking. Two nights later, three nights later, we're sitting in a restaurant, and I remember the night because it was the, uh, uh, the evening that Steve Jobs had passed away, a founder of Apple. So as the, all the TVs in the place were talking about Steve Jobs, I am spending three hours answering questions about the Bible, about the gospel, about the world. Now, the way most pastors tell these sort of stories, the guy walks out having given his life to Jesus. That did not happen. Pat walked out still unconvinced, but he was willing to continue the conversation. So we exchanged phone numbers, went our separate ways. I went home, told Leanne all about it, and then went to bed. Well, the next morning, I'm walking my third grade son, Salem, to the bus when my phone rings. Pull it out of my pocket, and I see it's Pat. And I'm thinking, oh no, I'm going to end up in another hour-long conversation I wonder what question he's come up with now, what defense he has against it. And I was like, I just got to send this to voicemail. 
So I send Pat to voicemail. I get little Salem up onto the bus and I make the walk back home. And as I'm walking home, I listen. And all the voicemail says is, Aaron, give me a call as soon as you can. What, what is going on? So I get home. I walk out on the back deck. I call Pat back. And Pat begins to tell me that he gets up that morning and his head is just swirling. He just, he's replaying our entire conversation and certain things just aren't making sense and things aren't falling together. And he's, as he's in the shower, all this stuff's going on. And finally, he's just like, God, if this is true, would you just show me? And all of a sudden, it happened. Pat's eyes were opened. He realized there is a God who not only created everything, but he didn't step back. He stayed involved. And the greatest way he was involved was he sent his son into this world to die on the cross for man's sins, but rise again from the dead. And in tears, Pat gave his life to Christ there in the shower. And as soon as he dried off, he picked up the phone and called me. Now you would think that as a pastor who is on his way to try to plant a church where we are seeking to invite the spiritually disconnected to find and follow Jesus, that I would be on cloud nine or 10 or 11, but I wasn't. Because you see, I also knew about Pat that throughout his life, he had stolen things from his wife and not stealing things like her necklace or her watch. No, he stole moments. He stole friends. He stole hobbies. For instance, after having two kids, she'd put on some weight, and she decided that she wanted to kind of get back in shape. And so she told him, I'm going to begin to do some exercise. Well, the next morning, as they're getting up, her husband, who she's never seen do a lick of exercise ever, is putting on shorts and a t-shirt. She's like, what are you doing? He says, I'm going on a run. And he heads out the door and goes on a run, and she's stuck at home because they've got two little kids. And by the time he was back, she did not have enough time to go exercise and get herself ready for work. And this kept happening almost every single day. Or she got a new job, really liked the coworkers, makes these new friends. Pretty soon, he's at some event. He makes some friends. And next thing she knows, he's going out with her friends from work, and she has to stuck at home with the kids as he's out enjoying time with these new friends. So she said her fear was if he gets involved at her church and that I, as her pastor, began to meet with him, that he was just going to steal her church, steal her pastor, and steal her Jesus. And so she wanted him nowhere around. So when he called me that morning to say, Aaron, I've given my life to Jesus, I'm thinking, oh no, she's right. He's just trying to manipulate and work his way in and steal yet another thing from her. So I decided to test him. In 1 Corinthians the Apostle Paul writes that the natural man can't discern the things of the Spirit. So I thought if, if Pat has not given his life to Jesus, because I believe that when someone puts their faith in Jesus, God's Holy Spirit comes to live in them. And then because the Holy Spirit comes to live in them, they begin to see things and understand things a little differently. So I thought, I'm going to test him. We're going to read the Bible together. And if he gets it, then I know this is genuine. If he doesn't get it, I'm going to th- think he's faking so with much skepticism, I meet with him a couple days later at a Vietnamese restaurant, phenomenal food. We sit down, I'd bought him a Bible, gave it to him, we opened it up, and after we ate our, our lunch, I asked him to begin to read in Romans. All of a sudden, as he's reading, he interrupts himself and goes, oh, I, I get it, I, I get it. And he begins to re-describe to me everything that he just read, but put it in his own words. And I suddenly found myself just like fall back in my chair, stunned. It was genuine. 
This man was not trying to steal anything from his wife. Instead, God had stolen his heart. And over the next 15 to 20 weeks, I had the joy of almost every single week having lunch with Pat and watching him read the scriptures and just come alive. God used these God-breathed scriptures to breathe life into Pat. Now, I do not tell you that story saying that, therefore, when you read the Bible, you should immediately understand everything in it. I have known Jesus since I was four years old, and that means I've been following him now for like, what, 45 years? Oh my goodness, I'm old. I've also been in full-time ministry for 25 years, and yet there are still things in scriptures that I cannot explain to you. Like, I can open up Revelation, you and I can have a Bible study, and I'm going to have a number of times where I'm going to shrug my shoulder and go, I don't know. And yet... So many times when I've opened up the Bible, read things that I've already read before, and either I see something fresh or God reminds me of something, and it's almost like I have a pat experience that I read it and I go, oh, I get it, that these God-breathed scriptures are breathing something into me. That's what I want for you. I want you to have this hunger for the scriptures That when you read it, you suddenly have it like God breathing into you. That you feel inspired not to just go write a poem or or make a song or, or do something. You feel inspired to give your life to Jesus and follow him. I want to see the Bible have its proper place in your life. That's why we're going to take four weeks to look at this thing and study it and figure out why can we rely on it? How did it come together? And how, therefore, can I begin to apply it to my life? So that I too might live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. So please join me next week as we jump on this journey. Let's pray. So Heavenly Father, uh, thank you for your holy scriptures. These timeless truths that you wrote so long ago and have impacted so many cultures, so many people throughout history and can even continue to impact us, us in 2022. Lord, I pray for the scoffer that you would help open up their heart and their mind, that they might have a pat moment where they realize this whole thing is true. I pray for those that know you, but they've been very, very casual about the scriptures, that you would increase their hunger and increase their desire by (laughs) increasing their trust in the the word. And Lord, for those that that have been inspired by your scriptures, may you just continue to do so. May we take these, these scriptures that you inspired through those authors And you can then use them to inspire us to live like Jesus lived and love like Jesus loved. So God, I pray that this would be the beginning of a beautiful journey, that you would just help put the Bible into its proper place in our lives, that we would have a high view of it, we would respect it like no other, because you, God, created this for us. So help us, Father, to bend our lives to you and to what you teach us in the scriptures, not based on what our culture says, not based upon our our past experiences, not based on our own biases, but that we would truly submit and surrender ourselves to you and you would accomplish in us what you need to so you can then accomplish through us what you want to. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.